get started. Welcome back. So this is, nice to be back, our winter session. This is part two of our Modern Jewish History course. Last year we addressed the beginning of the new Yishuv. We're starting in the late uh, to mid, mid to late 1800s all the way to the end of the First World War. And uh, this year we'll pick up from the end of the First War, hopefully get to the founding of the State of Israel. One of the difficult tasks that we'll have over the course of particularly tonight, but then throughout the rest of the, the courses that we'll address, if we were to use the analogy of the birth of the state of Israel literally as a birth, we would be these last 30 years from the end of the First World War to and through the Holocaust, and then those last three years leading into 1948, we would be into deep into labor uh, as far as describing the birth of the state, and it was a tumultuous time. It was uh, uh, difficult to put into words and describe all of the different factors going in that gave rise to the state of Israel. Particularly tonight, what we're going to address is Palestine under the British mandate, or it was often called Mandatory Palestine, which is a confusing title for, uh, I know as a, as a teenager, every time I would hear that phrase, Mandatory Palestine, not really understanding like what was so mandatory about it, but it just meant it was Palestine under the mandate of uh, of Britain. And part of the confusion is, as we'll try to cover tonight, just the early years of the mandate. Really, this is the context of the next 30 years that we are going to address from the end of the first year, World War, 1918, until the founding of the state 30 years later, 1948. Of course, the British don't pull out until 1947. Um, or really, it's 1948, right when they leave, is when, uh, of course, the War of Independence breaks out. So for those 30 years, the context of everything that takes place is in the context of the British mandate. So let's try to address a little bit of the first couple of years of the mandate and try to, at least in as clear a way as possible, describe the chaos that was taking place uh, in the land during this time. So uh, let's begin. Let us begin. First of all, just some numbers. Let's start with population. At the beginning of the war, there were about 800,000 residents in the land of Palestine at, in 1914. About 80,000, 10% of them are Jews. Uh, the war years was as it was in the land of Palestine for the entire world, not good for population growth. That number shrinks to about 640,000, about 66,000 Jews in the land, just to give a sense of numbers as the war, as the year, uh, as the, wars, the war years end. If you flip to the very end of the handout, which I'll just jump to the back for a moment, when on the, on the back side of your page, by the time 1945 arrives, we're going to be at 1.8 million residents um, in the land of Israel. So there's going to be an explosion during this time that we are going to be addressed of uh, Palestine under the, uh, the British mandate. There were a number of factors which defined the early years of the mandate. Number one, the Balfour Declaration. We spent an entire class on this last year. Let's just quickly highlight some of the points that are relevant for our purposes of the Balfour Declaration. 1917 document which declares the British support of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine with a provision that would be consistent with the rights and privileges of the non-Jewish population. As we discussed, the entire Balfour Declaration, Declaration is five, six, seven lines, and it does the impossible. It presents a contradiction in which it assesses that the crown, the queen, believes that the Jews have a right and are going to do everything possible to give the Jews the right to establish their homeland, and they're going to take care of their Arab population, which of course was the majority population at the time. 1917, you'll of course remember all 
also was before Britain was involved with the Allies' victory in the war. They're still fighting a war. They don't own control or have any boots on the ground, so to speak, in Palestine to begin with, which, of course, uh, drew tremendous ire from the Arab population, which was the majority at the time, who basically phrased it as, what kind of business is one country giving another country the land of a third country? But you can't do that. And that was a significant claim that they actually have. Britain, at the time, had actually made three separate agreements, some on top of the table, some under the table, to different parties, because they were fighting a war. And they were looking to gather support and allies in whatever way was possible. And one of them was to the Jews. As we discussed last year at length when we went through this, they miscalculated, as many do, the strength of the Jews, the popularity of the Jews, and the popularity of the Zionist movement as a whole at the time, and thought that if they were to do this, they would gain a tremendous amount of popular support. And instead, as we, as we described last year, the opposite happened. The Zionist movement was a fledging movement at the time, and when the Balfour Declaration came out, it actually garnered tremendous amount of support um, because of the Declaration, not the Declaration was responding to that. Either way, the Jews highlighted the first part of the Declaration, that the Queen looks with favor upon the establishment of a Jewish homeland. The Arabs focused on the second, that we have the rights and those rights can't be uh, affected. As I mentioned, it was really one of several agreements and promises. One was the Hussein McMahon correspondence of 1950-1916 in which the British were corresponding with the Arabs and promising them an independent land. The, the uh, declaration itself had little to no detail about how exactly are we going to create a Jewish homeland in an Arab land. Uh, it had no teeth it had no authority, as they had not yet conquered the land and were not in control at the time. But it did galvanize the Jewish world, and this is going to set the post-war tone for the land of Palestine, because this Balfour Declaration will remain in place until the 1939 White Papers, which we'll get to Mir Hashem a little bit later. There's a third agreement. So besides for the Balfour Declaration, which is said to the Jews, then they have the uh, Hussein McMahon correspondence, which was given to the Arabs. Then you have the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which was between England and France. This is an agreement. England and France are allies, of course, and they have the shared goal of kicking the Ottoman Turks out of the general Middle East, which they will eventually succeed in doing. And they meet in 1916 in 1916 to plan the division of the Ottoman Empire and the, uh, and the new Middle East. Now, this plan goes through three revisions. We could spend, if this was a, a pure history class, it would be a fascinating study actually to go through the maps and all the different uh, permutations of what England and France were deciding to do with other people's lands. They First they had this, and then they had a second reiteration of it, and then a third reiteration of it, and then there were side deals, and then there was Russia. It was, it was, it's a fascinating study, but it's not relevant to our study of Jewish history other than to know that England, as much as they promised the Jews a homeland, had lots of other promises to other countries and created literally a mess. There were three revisions to the Sykes-Picot Agreement. In 1918, following the war, it gets a third revision. And the basics, what's relevant again to us, would be England is going to take Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq. When we say Palestine, it was a much larger area than the little sliver of what we refer today as the modern state of Israel. It was a much larger swath of land. And the French were going to take Syria and Lebanon. 
Now, it should be noted, neither Jordan nor Lebanon existed at that time. There was no such thing of either one of those two places. France was basically going to take Syria and divide up a chunk and create Lebanon. And England was basically going to take the piece of what today is modern Jordan. They took that from this larger area of the Palestinian territory, and they carved out, as we'll see in a few minutes, a gift to King Hussein for his being an ally in their war against the Turks, and gave him a piece of land and called it the Kingdom of Jordan. Those were new concepts, and it's not until the 1940s that they were actually officially like instated in the UN as a country unto itself. They were under, Fran- Lebanon was a French like colony, so to speak, and uh, Jordan was under the English, they'd given this kingdom to King Hussein, and they eventually became their own totally independent nations several years, uh, several years later. England and France, as they're divvying this up, are like uh, thinking colonially. Like, we're the victors, we just fought this war, and we get to do whatever we want. And we're going to take this land, and you get this, and I get this, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. Taking into account the actual local population was irrelevant, because in a colonial mindset, what difference does that make? They're a resource, we've conquered them, and you'll take this, and I'll take that. At the same time that they're trying to divvy up all the land, Woodrow Wilson the U.S. president, who was very invested in World War I, it was when the U.S. joined the war late in the war that turned the tide and basically put a swift end to the war, had a totally different approach, and he wanted self-determination. He was believing, as a, as a good American, what do you mean? What, you can't come in and tell all of these people who's going to rule and run. They should be able to decide for themselves what it is that they want. So you have the English and the French, you have the U.S. pressure, and then you have Russia which of course is also a discussion unto itself, but they also had, they had, first they were allies with Germany, they were allies with the British, and they were, they were a lot of under-the-table deals that were being signed as everybody is divvying up the world. The world is in chaos after World War I, as, as we've discussed and as is well known, and so Russia wants a piece of the pie as well, and they were given a piece of the pie, and then it was taken away, and then they decided, it's like a soap opera, then they published the terms of the agreement, of the secret agreement between England and France. And they published it, which was, of course, humiliating to England and to France. And then there was a whole to do. But none of this is relevant to the Jewish history aspect of what's going on, other than understanding part of the... Um, part of the, the, what the, the chaos of the term at the time. And then the fourth major player, of course, is the local Arab population. In all of these areas is, is mostly Arab, and they have never been, and I don't, can't say never will, but it doesn't seem that way, will be a unified, can't just say the Arabs. The Arab group is made up of tremendously different, uh, you have Shiite, you have Sunni, you have in different areas, and they've now were just arbitrarily created this, you know, Lebanon and Jordan and Iraq and France and England are saying, well, you take this and you take that. And the Arabs are saying, what do you mean? I, I, we don't want any of this and we don't want any of you. And to this day, as I was researching this class, I, I happened to get a kick out of reading like Al Jazeera history reports, like to see like the same story from different sides. It's fascinating. So they are just as angry with the British as they are with the Jews for what happened to the land of Palestine, which they also blame on the Balfour Declaration and the British mandate of who are you coming in and taking our land and helping the Jews establish their land? They're just as guilty. 
And, and from a perspective, you're like, yeah, and it's if you're the indigenous people, and then new people come in, so you're always going to rebel and resent any other force coming in, whether it be France and Syria, or England and Palestine, Palestine and Iraq, and, uh, and Jordan. And all of this is going on as they're divvying up the land, as the world is in chaos and mourning and grieving the tens of millions of people that died during World War I. And in the midst of all of this, we have the center of our story, the Jews who want this little piece of land in the midst of this. And this is our homeland coming home. And remember, we're in the middle of the story. It's already 1918, 1919. The, the first World Zionist Congress is 1897. 1897. So this is already 20 years in the making. It's not that we just started. This has already been going on. And the first Aliyah, the wave already was in the 1880s. So the Yishuv is developing, the Yishuv is growing, the Zionist movement is taking hold. And now you have this World War I and chaos and all of this. And the Balfour Declaration, of course, galvanizes the Jews. And so they want the land. Meanwhile, England says, what do you mean? We're the victors, this is our land. The Arabs say, well, what are you talking about? This is our land. And welcome to the Middle East. Okay, let's, with all of that, let's uh, discuss some of the... Uh, some of the details. So the Treaty of Versailles uh, creates the League of Nations at the end of the First World War and officially gives England the mandate over uh, Greater Palestine. Again, I say Greater Palestine because it was not the little swath of land that we refer to today as, uh, you know, from the river to the sea. We're all familiar with that. It was actually much larger is what the land of Palestine was. The British army is in a much more uh, a strengthened position than the French because it was the actual British who had boots on the ground and actually defeated the Turks. French and, and England were allies, but it was the British who actually fought the war in uh, the Middle East in uh, Palestine, uh, which had originally been part of Ottoman Syria. And what happened is the army rules for two years. So right after the war from 1918 to 1920 is uh, martial law. The army is in control and uh, in the summer of 1920 they finally set up a civil government. So for the locals, both the Arabs and the Jews living in Palestine, so the Ottomans are there, the Ottomans lose, the British come in, they set up a military society for two years and then eventually they set up a civil government. The mandate is officially granted in April of 1920 to San Remo Conference and approved by the League of Nations in July of 22. So it's a bit of time that goes by until the official mandate is ratified by the nations of the world. One of the miracles of our story, as Rabbi Beryl Wine likes to refer to this, for reasons that are, this is a quote from him, for reasons that are unknown and nothing short of miraculous, England includes in its charter for the mandate the full text of the Balfour Declaration. Meaning, 1917, Balfour issues this declaration. As we've said, it's, the, it's, three, it's part of at least three promises that they've made to different interest groups about what they plan on doing. Four or five years later, they're victorious. They're now setting up the official mandate together in the UN, and they can do whatever they want at this point. There is absolutely nothing binding England to the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And they put it in. And that's what's ratified in the UN, 
as their official mandate, as they take control legally by international law of Palestine, that they have this mandate, and included in the mandate is the text of the Balfour Declaration. They could have easily repudiated it, both 19 and 1920, and now it becomes this international law of the Jews' right that the Queen looks with favor that they should strive for a homeland in Palestine. And this, of course, is the, the source of the context of political, social, religious unrest that will define the next century and counting. On the one hand, on the one hand, they included it in the Charter, and it remains there until the White Papers of 1939, in which they're basically going to say that you know, no, no Jews can come, and we'll learn about the White Papers, Mertz Shun. On the other hand, so they put the, 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 the Declaration into their Charter. The Mandate's terms also require that Britain has an obligation to conduct its policy in Palestine with the needs of both Jews and Arabs, which includes creating political, administrative, and economic conditions that would facilitate the independent rule of communities under British control, which means their mandate is to also set up an Arab government and an Arab land which, of course, we know never happens. And those two objectives are intrinsically contradictory. You take a group of Jews and a Jew- group of Arabs in the land of Palestine and then take a third party and say, that third party is legally now in- mandated to set up a homeland for one and for the other simultaneously. And it- it's no big chachma that it didn't work. And that 30 years later, Britain hit- heads for the hills and saying, throwing this problem back to the UN and saying, you deal with this, but we are, we are finished. It didn't even take that long. By the late 20s already, the British newspapers are screaming, we need to get out of Palestine. What, what is this helping us uh, because of the mess that it was created? All of this to say, I want to give you a quote from a uh, Roman Catholic named Conor Cruz O'Brien, who was, a, he lived, uh, he was active in the 70s um, in England and Ireland, um, and he wrote a book called The Saga of Israel and Zionism. He interestingly compared the plight of Ireland to the plight of Israel. And uh, just one line of his, he wrote that Ireland is not a problem, but a conflict. This is not the quote on your sheet. This is a separate quote. Ireland, it's not a problem. It's a conflict. Conflicts, he wrote, do not have solutions. Conflicts have outcomes. And that he wrote, he was talking about Ireland, is the same as in Israel's situation. There's no resolution to a conflict. There's going to be an outcome. The outcome can either go like this or it can go like that. But there'll never be a resolution in the way that we like to think of a resolution, which both parties go home happy. Outcomes, uh, conflicts have outcomes. And that was an interesting comment of his, which I share. Anyway, what I really wanted to share was a quote from his book. It's a fascinating quote. He writes, If a Zionist of the pious sort were to tell me that the true explanation of the phenomenon of the Balfour Declaration and the Mandate was that God had decided that it was time for his people to come home, if you would make that argument and say, how did this Balfour Declaration, how was it written in the first place, and how did it end up in the Mandate? So if you would tell me, if a pious Zionist would come to me and say, ah, it's the hand of God, he wants the Jews home, I could no doubt express polite skepticism. I could say that's one interpretation, but I think he says I could, I could argue that against that point. But if that same pious Zionist 
were then to ask me whether I have any other plausible explanation in terms of Britain's material interests for the British government's reinforcement of the Balfour Declaration in the circumstance of the early 20s. So you knew... Do you have another explanation why Britain left it in there? What interest of, was it to them to, to mandate creating a homeland for the Jews? I should have to say that I cannot find any such explanation. I just don't understand why that would be. So we could look at it and we could say, okay, good. We're going to go with the first explanation. It came time that Hashem said, I'm bringing the Jews home. And in the chaos of World War I, this is how we're going to start that process and any other explanation we certainly do not know. A British historian that Rabbi Wein likes to quote described the Balfour Declaration as a crown piece of insincerity coupled with insanity. From a British perspective, and I, from a British perspective, like, it is. Like, what were they doing? Of what benefit was it, other than maybe 1917 to try to garner support? But once the war was won, what are you doing? But they left it in there, and that became the context of their particular mon- mandate. Okay. Now, the British determined the borders of Palestine, moving on in section E, according to other agreements that they had made with other... They're like dividing it up. They're playing it again. Like we have a map and we're going to cut here, we're going to draw here, we're going to color in here, you get this and I get that. And based on other agreements that they had. So for example, they transferred the eastern bank of the Jordan River, uh, what we call in the Chumash, Ever Hayardain. They transferred that to the control of Abdullah ibn Hussein of the Hashemite dynasty and appointed him king of Jordan in recognition of his support during the war. And that became Jordan. They appointed him, they gave it to him, and it wasn't until the, the 1940s that it was officially ratified as its own independent country, but that became uh, Jordan. As we mentioned, from 18 to 20, it was military rule. Um, and the British army uh, was not quite in favor of uh, the Jews. It was anti-Zionist and anti-Semitic rule. Um, on page three, as we continue along, um, the general, the general of the army was quoted as saying, I want to have nothing to do with Lloyd, Lloyd George, Balfour, and their long-nosed friends. Uh, Ronald Storrs, who becomes one of the main players during this era, he was the military governor of Jerusalem from 1918 to 1926, said, Zionism has a metallic cling to it. It bangs, it bangs, it bangs. That was referring to the Jews who come in and they make demands. They're always banging on the table. We need this and we need that and we need it. He's like, just, there's, a, there's a metallic cling to the Zionists. All they do is they make demands and demands and demands and demands. He wasn't used to dealing with the gruff, the Eastern European immigrants who came with the Zionist dream from whatever lands they left and they wanted to do stuff. And the British, you know, with their tea and their uh, whatever they were busy with, didn't quite... You know, a culture clash between, a culture clash both between the local Jews who had been in Palestine and those who immigrated from Russia and wherever they came, it didn't quite, uh, didn't quite go. So the British had really did, did not, from the beginning, appreciate uh, that which was going on. And to be fair, and we will talk about this at length, Mir Hashem, uh, in some future classes, the Zionists at the time were not model British citizens loyal to the crown. We, it, it, it would be unfair to address any class on, on, on the origins of the state, not to acknowledge it was, it was not, uh, however you want to say, they were, they were not model citizens. 
the Jews who were there had an agenda, and it was an agenda to come home. It was an agenda to create a homeland. It was an agenda to end hundreds of years of persecution, and all the various uh, uh, groups within the Zionist movement, as we discussed, who wanted to come home, and the British were in the way. And uh, this is really one of the points which uh, uh, we'll, we'll highlight as we're going through. Uh, I remember growing up always being a little bit confused as as you know, learning about uh, the early days of the state, and there always was, like, the British were always there. I'm trying to think, like, who are the British, and why are they in Palestine? Like, like the, the Jew and the Arab was, like, a common theme, like, as, uh, you know, as growing up in, in the, you know, 80s and 90s, always the Jew, Arab, Jew, Arab, Jew, Arab. But then when you learn history, it was the Jew and the British, and the British were hanging Jews and putting them in prison and doing all these things. Like, what are they doing there? Well, the Jews had the same thought in 1920. Like, what are you doing here? This is not your lands. Like the Arabs, we understand why they don't like us, but the, the British military comes in and then they don't leave. And they have this mandate, and we said, thank you very much. Your mandate says to give us a homeland. We're ready. Go home. And that created, uh, over the years, as the British would clamp down and make it more and more difficult for the Jews to come, to immigrate, to set up a society. Um, there, and this is one of the classes we'll learn about, is the, the, the difference between the Lechi, the Haganah, and the Irgun, the Jews formed different groups with different objectives and different political strategy as to how do you get the British out? Is it a military campaign? Is it a political campaign? And that was one of the major debates, of course, between uh, Ben-Gurion and Begin and the Lechi and the Haganah. What do you do with the British? So either way, already in the 1920s, it, it's going to begin in which the Jews who are there, who have a very clear agenda as to what the goal is, and the, and the British are in the way of that particular, uh, of that particular goal. As it, as it is, the British government under Storrs took two specific steps to undermine the Balfour Declaration. Number one, they banned the Jewish immigration. From 1918 to 1920, you could not immigrate to the land of Israel as a Jew. Which again, sometimes you know, like a, it's like a, a brief historical note. It's going to be re- repealed and then it's going to come back in the white papers. But for those two years, you can imagine it's right after the war, the first world war again. Nobody knows the second world war is coming just 20 years later, which is, uh, you know, a bigger disaster. But right, the world is in total chaos. The, the, the communities, everybody Wine points it out all the time. If it wouldn't have been for World War II, we would still be talking about the destruction of World War I and how it ruined the Eastern Europe, the Jewish communities, the structure, the infrastructure, everything was, uh, was destroyed through, through World War War one and and so where's the Jew going to go? Well, now we have the Balfour Declaration. We have the land of that's where everybody would go, and they didn't let. They totally closed the borders from all Jews from immigrating to uh, to the land, which again is one of the steps. We we find this dance throughout Jewish history, and I just I think it's important to point it out. I know you've pointed it out before. Uh, Jewish history is not a perfect graph of redemption. Redemption never goes that way. It's like a stock market graph. There are ups and there are downs, and there are in, when you scale back in history, you can see it. You can see the direction is up. We're moving towards redemption. But in the move towards redemption, it's one of those kind of graphs. And there are moments, if you lived in 1919 and you were coming out of World War I and your community was destroyed in, in somewhere in Europe and you tried to get to Palestine and, and the British said you can't come, you'd say, like, this is great, how could it be? There, that's how Jewish history, and there's always a, two steps forward and a step back and there are some periods of time like that and it's, it has been like that and uh, I don't, can't say it will always be like that, but that's certainly the pattern uh, that we have seen. The second thing that stores did in those early years of military government, was he prohibited all transfer of land. 
basically put a, an end, a moratorium on all transfer land. Like, the war's over, we gotta get a handle on things. No buying, no selling, no transfer. Whatever is, is, and nobody can touch any piece of land, which in effect closed down the entire Zionist operation. The Zionist operation at that point had two agendas, immigration, and lands. That was what they were trying to do to build up the, to build up the country. And they couldn't do, uh, they couldn't do anything. Of course, this was under the authority of martial law and for public good. Uh, as Jabotinsky uh, wrote in a letter during this time to Weizmann, the official approach of the British is to apologize to the Arabs for a slip of the tongue of Mr. Balfour. That's how they sort of felt what's going on during that particular time. Bringing us to the Arab riots of 1920. Now, that's not one of the numbers that we're mostly familiar with. Arab riots in 1929, 1936, and 33. There are, like, there are bigger riots than this one, but this is worth noting because this is, I, I, I can't say the first, but it's one of the first, it's certainly the first during the British Mandate period. It was also known as the uh, Nebi Musa Festival, which was an Arab festival um, or the Jerusalem riots, uh, which were, these riots were incited by uh, the notorious anti-Semite Hajamin al-Husseini. Um, and the Arabs rioted in Jaffa and Jerusalem. It's uh, unclear exactly how many uh, casualties they were. Uh, it, it seemed from most of these secular sources that I looked at, it was a, sh- a small number of Jews, uh, ranging between five and ten. Some of the more Jewish sources put it close to a hundred. I, I don't know. Um, uh, several hundred were, uh, were wounded. So it, it was certainly not as significant in terms of loss of life as some of the later riots that we will have, but it is significant, again, because it's of the first and because both the Jews and the Arabs believed that the military administration of the, of the British at the time was sympathetic to the riots. I mean, the Arabs believed that they were like sort of given permission or authority or a blind eye from the British, and they were supposed to do this. And the Jews felt, yeah, that's what they did, and they're against us, and therefore the the British is as much as the enemy as uh, uh, as the Arabs. Just as an example, so the stores, Ronald Stores, uh, the military governor is cheered on by Arab supporters uh, in their demonstration of Jerusalem. They present him with an actual declaration. And the declaration they present him as is, now again, he's a uh, good Christian. They say it in Palestine, where the Messiah was born and crucified, and which is considered a fatherland by all the world, refuses to be a national home for the people who killed the Messiah and have done evil unto the whole world. This is what the Arabs are getting on the side of, uh, of stores. Like, this is your homeland. This is where your Messiah was born and crucified. We are the protectors, the Arabs claimed, of the holy city of Jerusalem so that the murderers of the Messiah should not take home and residence here. Which people among whom the Jews have dwelled have not wis- witnessed massacres and shedding of blood? Like, this is a, a Jew comes in, it's a disaster, the Arabs said. It's not our... We're not the problem. Every place where the Jew goes, there are massacres, there's bloodshed. And he, of course, didn't realize that, yeah, it's the Jew who's been massacred and bloodshedded in every place that he's gone. But this is his argument to get on Storr's good side. The Jews are always the problem. The Jew, meanwhile, when Storrs came to um, Menachem Ushiskin, who was the head of the Zionist movement at the time, to pay his condolences for the loss of life. The Jews, obviously, in a, in a riot, however many they were, there were, there were casualties. So he came to pay his respects to Menachem Ushiskin. 
Um, and the, the, uh, the conversation went, uh, went as follows. I have come to express my grief, Storer said, over the catastrophe that befell us. So Oshiskin responded, uh, what, what catastrophe are you referring to? So he said, what do you mean? I'm referring to the saddening events which took place here over the last few days. So Ushishkin said, is your honor referring to the pogrom? So Stor said, it was not a pogrom. It is impossible to call these riots a pogrom. Now, language is a very important entity in terms of how you define something. So Ushishkin is defining the event as a pogrom. And Storrs refuses to allow it to be called a pogrom. What's the difference? So a pogrom is a state-sponsored, or at least turning a blind eye and allowing the pogrom to happen. So Ushiskin is saying, you're in charge. Here are the riots. Again, if we wanted to spend the time on it, there's a long write-up on, just like on all the uh, events as to what happened over the course of days that took place. So Shiskin says, this is a pogrom, and you're responsible for it, because you're the state government in charge. Storr says, no, 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 this is a riot. To which Shiskin responded, you, Colonel, are an expert in administrative matters, but I am an expert in pogroms. And I can promise you, he said, that there is no difference between the Jerusalem pogrom and the Kishinev pogroms that the organizers of this local pogrom did not show any originality. They didn't come up with this chap on their own, these Arabs here in Jerusalem in 1920. They followed step by step the way of the perpetrators of the Russian pogrom. Tsar Nicholas did not interfere with that pogrom. He oppressed us. Does your honor see what has befallen him? In his place, where Nicholas stood, now sits Trotsky. And all of our enemies in the world and in the land of Israel will meet such an end. That's Ushiskin accepting the condolences of uh, general stores, claiming it's a uh, claiming the pogrom. Now, the impact of this uh, riot a was increased distrust with the British, who were not quick to quell the unrest, and they arrested many. They arrested Jabotinsky on weapons charges. They arrested Al Husseini himself. Uh, which only increased the Arab quest for independence, which again was part of the British mandate to set up for both their own independent government. It increased the Jewish need for self-defense. And interestingly, an important uh, fact, it attracted over 80 sheiks of various neighboring villages who sent a letter to England in support of Jewish immigration, saying the local Arabs are rioting, but it's not all of us. We see the economic benefits of what's taking place with Jewish immigration and the development of the land. We've discussed in the past, before the Jews arrived in the 1880s, it was a barren wasteland, and the economy had increased significantly as the Jews were coming. And so there were a a number of sheiks who actually sent a letter of support to England saying, we support this which is going on. On some of the uh, more secular sites, it was reported that the sheiks were paid off by the Jews and bribed to send that letter. Just, the whole thing is interesting. 
The whole thing is interesting. Another point uh, of interest is the British appoint, as they switch from the military government to a civil administration, they appoint Sir Herbert Samuel to be the first British High Commissioner of Palestine. Now, what's of note of that is he, Sir Herbert Samuel, was a Jew and had risen to prominence in the Liberal Party in Britain. And upon his arrival in June of 1920, declares, I am hereby the first Jewish leader in Palestine since Hyrcanus II, the last Maccabee later in 40 BCE. Yeah. I, I cannot answer that question. I don't know. But uh, so in, you know, you know, just coming off of the period in which they like limited immigration and now they appoint the first high commissioner as a Jew who was aware of Jewish history, aware of the moment as he arrives in Palestine in June of 1920 to say, here I am, the first Jew in control, in charge officially of the land of Palestine since the time of the Maccabees and the destruction of the second, uh, the second temple. He attempted to restore the promises of the Balfouret Declaration. And uh, number one, he opened up immigration again, which leads to the third Aliyah, which we'll have another class about as well. From 1920 to 1923 is the, the, what we call the third Aliyah uh, to the land, during which the Jewish population of the country more than doubled during those uh, three, during a three-year period. And he again allowed the transfer of land, uh, during which time... Um, a great deal of Arab land is uh, purchased, and new Jewish settlements are uh, made on almost a daily basis. It was a time, so the first two years were everything was shut down, no land transfer, no immigration. So Herbert Samuel arrives, and that is both uh, reversed. Now, being the good Briton, he tries to mollify the Arabs as well. And uh, El Husseini, who had been arrested for his part in the riots, is released. As well, he also frees Jabotinsky. So just a fascinating time. And we're just like skimming over it. But during this period of time, these leaders of the Arabs and of, he becomes the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He was arrested from the riots and then he's pardoned. Jabotinsky had been arrested on weapons charges also during that time. He had come to try to aid during the riots and he is released. And he tries, uh, Samuel, to reconcile the Jews and Arabs into one group and proposes that the Jews and Arabs together should have a democratic self-government council, and they'll run the the domestic affairs of the country. Great idea. Uh, Don't need to tell you that that did not work. The Arabs certainly um, had no interest in sitting together with the Jews. So he withdraws his plan and sets up two independent agencies, a Jewish agency for Jewish affairs and a Muslim agency that would run the Arab affairs. However, the Arabs never really got together. They never took hold of that agency, and the British instead continued to control most of the Arab affairs, whereas the Jewish agency developed, and it it became the shadow government and the government in training, so that when, 15 years later, uh, or 20 years later almost, when the British finally say, we're out, the Jews are actually ready to open up a government which is one of the amazing uh, details as we'll cover over this 30-year period from the end of the uh, First War to this founding of the state. During this time, they're setting up all the infrastructure that would be needed, which was originally set up by the British, by Sir, Sir uh, Herbert Samuel, 
uh, which was supposed to be in conjunction with a Muslim agency together with a Jewish agency, and the Jewish agency does take hold, and in 1948, the British leave, and the Jews are ready to go. They have all the infrastructure in place. They've had nearly 30 years of building it up to actually be ready to, uh, to take that apart, to take that on. But during those 30 years, each society has its own welfare, its own educational and cultural institutions, and they gradually become politically and economically totally independent of one another. Everything that we see today has its seeds planted 100 years ago as the, as the British come in, again, this third party trying to manage the local Arab population, which is not a single unified population on its own. The Jews are also, of course, not a single unified population. We have the religious community in Jerusalem. We have the, the, um, the Zionists, who, as we mentioned, were anti-religious. And within the Zionists, many different groups. So we were also not unified. But in setting up the agency, uh, that, it did indeed, uh, that did indeed take hold. Uh, Jewish immigration and the natural growth of the Arab population in Palestine will dr- dramatically transform the, demogra- the uh, yeah, demography of the mandatory Palestine over the next number of years. So in 1922, we're up to about 700,000 in- inhabitants. So we went from about 600,000, 640,000 right after the war. It increases up to 700,000 and it's going to hit 1.8 million um, in the next 20 years. By 1945, um, the Arab population will double and the Jewish population is going to grow uh, tenfold. And that is, uh, just as we get started, some of the background. This background, again, is the context for the next 30 years. The British mandate, first the military, then the British civil government, the Jews, as we're going to discuss between the Haganah, the Irgun, the Lachi, are going to view the British, and this, is, this was Menachem Begin's issue, and he always claimed there are civilian British targets, and there are military British targets. And he always made that distinction, which is an important distinction, which we'll see, but this again has the roots here. Because the British started as a military organization, and they switched to a civil government. When, the, when Menachem Begin, as we're going to learn, waged his war uh, against the British, so the British viewed him as a terrorist, viewed him as a terrorist. And they had signs up all over England for the arrest and the, the, the killing of the terrorist Menachem Begin. Begin always said, I never attack British civilian targets. We only attack military targets. This is a war. We'll have to get to how we got from 1923 to 1947 and all the things that go on in between. But all of this, this is the context of the discussion of the British military moving in, divvying up the land. The Arabs were told they would get a, a land and a government, and they never did. The Jews had been promised, of course, in the Balfour Declaration, which the English leave in the mandate, and which the Jews, of course, take very seriously. And they, steps are indeed taken towards that. There is a step back for every step forward, as as we will cover. But this context of all of the, the turmoil going on during the particular time sets our, uh, sets our story up for the next 30 years. And over the rest of the winter, we'll go through uh, piece by piece various different episodes uh, leading from this period of the, the post-war years all the way through the Holocaust and then the founding of the state uh, in 1948. So look forward to uh, addressing all of that. So nice to have people live and in person again. And look forward to continuing uh, future Monday nights.